When it comes to technology, the U.S. government has a lot of catching up to do. I think my biggest complaint about the government's use of technology is that it often is three generations behind where we are today. I've tried to get a license through the North Carolina DMV and they didn't recognize my own address in their system, which the post office recognizes it, everything recognizes it. I've had no problems other than the DMV. Just in general, I think we don't know where to find things and there's not a good like hub for where, do you, where can you find this? Where can you go to get this done? And stuff like that. We all know how painful it can be to go to the DMV or to renew a passport, to change a name, even to vote. It means usually tons of paperwork, bureaucracy, long lines. And more often than not, it's complicated, it's confusing, and it's almost painfully analog. Estonia, on the other hand, does things differently. And if you've never heard of Estonia, well, it's a small country in Northern Europe with a population of 1.3 million. In 2017, its government pioneered a project called E-Estonia, which streamlined government services by making everything digital, which transformed Estonia into a digital society with digital citizenship. The Estonia is uh, representing digital lifestyle, uh, a lifestyle where uh, citizens can trust uh, the government as the government is really transparent when it comes to processing information, where most of the services are delivered online digital channels, and uh, people don't have to hustle with any paperwork. That's Anna Piperol, one of the ambassadors for e-Estonia. As she explains it, in Estonia, citizens carry just one document, an ID card, that allows access to a blockchain-encrypted hub with documents pertaining to every area of life. e-Estonia has everything. Your passport, driver's license, birth certificate, car registration, health insurance card, along with prescriptions, doctor's notes, and even your grades from college. So you plug the card, you put in the PIN code, and the system identifies you because of this encryption happening on the back end. Uh, you can see the list of services uh, from different areas of life. It's like a one-stop shop that collects all the links to different services. With citizens and the government using one central system that has all of your information, tasks can be done in a matter of minutes. Need a new passport? Just log on, select your birth certificate and driver's license, hit send, and boom, you are all set. Individuals have complete control over who sees and uses their information. If you want to apply for a loan, for example, the bank has to request access to your pay stubs, and only after you choose to grant it will they be able to view those documents and those documents only. The bank won't be able to see your health records, your address, or car payments if you don't give them permission. With eEstonia, every citizen owns their data and how it's used. And because eEstonia is built on blockchain, every time someone logs on, views a file, or requests access to a document, it's recorded on a permanent public database. Anna argues that it's a more transparent system, one where the government is better held accountable for the storage and exchange of a citizen's data. In Estonia, not only I can log in to the population registry and see what is exactly the information they've collected about me, and also seeing how exactly this was used, who was accessing this data from other state institutions. This already gives me so much more control and, um, and security when it comes to, to the relationship. 
of the state and and the citizen. So for my own personal protection, from the data protection purposes, having a unified state identity like we have uh, in the form of the ID card has really uh, opened new opportunities to to more trust and more transparent operations and plus saving everyone a lot of time. Okay, so why doesn't America just go ahead and build an e-America so we never have to wait in line or fill out a physical form again? Well, it's not just that developing software, building a platform, educating people about it, and getting people comfortable with it takes time. A system like this requires a certain relationship between citizens and the government. It requires trust. So over 70% of people use the ID card um, on a monthly basis, so constantly. So yeah, really, this uh, has been life-changing for Estonians. I know many Estonians who, who moved abroad for some reason and they're stressing out publicly about the bureaucracies of the world. Um, but for for local people here, in many cases, uh, it's hard for them to value uh, what they have as they're so used to it, they're kind of grown with it, and it feels uh, very natural. I'm Claire Evans, and this is You, a podcast about the intersection of technology, humanity, and identity, brought to you by Okta. This is episode four, and we're talking about government and citizenship with the founder of Code for America. Hi, (laughs) I'm Jennifer Palka. I run an organization called Code for America. I worked for a while at the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, starting something called the United States Digital Service. And I work in government in a number of ways. I serve on the Defense Innovation Board, um, and I like to work with state and local government. So tell me, how does Code for America work? Well, today what Code for America does really is um, build government services uh, that are so good that they're surprising. Uh, They're surprising for the people who use them, and they're effective for the people in government to get the outcomes that that they intend. So you talk about, like, what's your favorite app on, on your phone? What really makes your life run more easily? How well does that app work? And compare it to how most government digital services work today. Mm-hmm. We're much we're, we're closer to that favorite app on your phone. Um, so we, we build services that inspire people, like uh, a different way of applying for food assistance, a different way to clear a criminal record. And then we help other people in government when they see that um, this is better, not just for the user, but for government, then we help them learn how to do that themselves. And then we build a community of people around those ideas and who say, this is really important to the future of our country. Let's spread these ideas and get more people inside and outside of government practicing them. You said once that we cannot reinvent government if we do not reinvent citizenship. What does that mean? Well, I think we keep sort of otherizing government and saying this is someone else's fault. And you see that the problems that hold government back, that make it risk averse, um, people like to complain about things like procurement. Procurement rules make government technology bad. I mean, that's an overstatement, but forgive the slight Mm -hmm. overstatement. Uh, It makes it very hard to do good technology. Um, Those rules were put in place because we, the people, thought, we shouldn't trust government. We shouldn't trust people in government. 
um, and maybe for good reason, but we the people created the problem, so we the people need to fix it. And if we don't start to think about ourselves differently, uh, our role in government, not just in terms you know, the rules and regulations that govern government, but also our role in fixing the problems in our own communities, then we're not going to get out of this. Mm-hmm. But I think we can, so. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a culture clash that happens when a bunch of dynamic tech people enter the government space? I mean, what are those conversations like? Sure. I mean, culture clash is what it's all about in a certain sense. But there's also this like incredibly wonderful thing that happens when people have been working in models that are, you know, tough to get good results from. Mm-hmm. And you create a space for them to do it in a new, a new, you know, a new approach, a new model. We call it delivery driven government, but uh, it's basically, it's just a user centered, iterative and data driven way. And that dynamism gets unleashed. Then you have like a beautiful culture meld of, of you know, the tech skills and the incredible passion of public servants. So both. What are some projects that you're really excited about right now that Code for America is doing? Well, we started several years ago um, trying to understand why California has this terrible participation gap in food assistance. Mm-hmm. So by participation gap, what I mean is we have a federal program called SNAP, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. In California, it's just known as CalFresh. And yet... Um, Something like 35 to 40 percent of the people who were eligible to take advantage of it were not on the program. That's one of the lowest, biggest participation gaps in the country. In fact, only Wyoming had a bigger gap than California when we started. Wow. And um, we were going, what's, what's going on here? You know, this is not only good for the individual, it's good for communities. It's the program most associated with better health and education outcomes for kids, for mm-hmm. instance. So one of the things we looked at was looked at a lot of things, but it was really obvious that the online um, application form, like the way that you would apply if you weren't going to go sit in an office and stand in line, et cetera, um, just doesn't really work very well for people. You know, with uh, all due respect, it's it's takes about an hour to fill out, maybe a little bit less. It asks over 200 questions. Some of those questions are not only unnecessary, but kind of assume you're a criminal. So I find them insulting and I know other people do. Um, And the application doesn't work at all on a mobile phone. Mm. So if you, uh, you know, there's a high correlation between low income and not having broadband internet at home. So you might not be able to do it at work. Um, If you go to a library, well, the library computers time out after 30 minutes and this application doesn't let you save your work. So how are you going to get through an application that takes almost an hour? So we built a mobile first, far, you know, streamlined, com, you know, plain language uh, application form that allows you to not only like just, uh, you know, submit your application in about seven minutes, but also upload your documents because you can use the phone's camera to take a picture of your driver's license, your pay stub or whatever. Um, and this was like a crazy experiment, uh, say, three and a half years ago, just, you know, trying something out to see what would happen. And 2019, we all hit a million users of this. So it's wow. like definitely this crazy experiment is now closing the participation gap in California. And more importantly, it's showing people that government services can be great. They mm-hmm. can be easy to use. They can be easy to understand. They can communicate with users with respect and, and treat them with dignity. So that, that's one I'm, I've been quite excited about it for a long time. But the numbers we're getting to right now make me even more proud. When you're looking for new projects or projects that you're interested in undertaking, I mean, are you looking for things where there is a service, but there isn't a lot of adoption for whatever reason? I mean, what are the sort of 
spots where you see yourself mm-hmm. intervening in the most successful way? That's a good question. I mean, I think the basic framework we think about is um, what we call the implementation gap. Mm-hmm. So you see it in Get Cal Fresh. Uh, that's the name of the app, by the way. Get Cal Fresh is getcalfresh.org is how you would apply if you want to go through our our side of it. Um, now, an even starker example of that um, is another project I happen to also be very excited about right now uh, called Clear My Record. And it started because we were working in the criminal justice system. And here in California, this is a California story, but there are sort of examples like this in different states. Um, in 2016, we passed something called Proposition 47. And then in 2018, Prop 64. Prop 47 um, made it possible legally to reclassify a whole set of old, low-level felonies as misdemeanors. Mm-hmm. Prop 64 mar- uh, legalized marijuana. So in both cases, you have the legal you know, statement, essentially, that if you, as someone with a 17-year-old pot conviction on your record, um, uh, that you can, that's actually no longer, frankly, that's not even a crime anymore. And you sh- it should be taken off your record. It's really important that it's taken off your record because it keeps you from getting a job. It keeps you from student loans. It keeps you from low-income housing. There's something like 4,000 things it keeps you from doing, including like you can't drive your kids in a carpool like it's uh, or like a school outing. Mm. There are all these things that just are, are really debilitating uh, that having a felony record for something that, frankly, we have all decided mm-hmm. <laughs> is pretty minor mm-hmm. um, and that you know, keeps tends to keep people in a cycle of persistent poverty and incarceration. So great, we passed these laws. But how do you actually get that off of your record? What we were asking people to do was almost impossible to do. You had to go to a legal clinic between uh, 9 and 11 on Tuesdays, find a form. There's only a paper form. The paper forms are different county to county. You might have convictions in more than one county. You're supposed to get that form. You're supposed to go over to the police station, get a request a copy of your rap sheet. That costs money. Um, you know, fill out the form, get a legal legal support, um, file it, wait, show up in court. There's just like all of these steps that you had to do, and you can't miss any of them. Uh, it takes you know close to a year, it costs money, and then hopefully you know at least one of your of your records would be cleared. Well, that meant that you know several years after uh, the passage of Prop 47, for instance. We estimate and others estimate something like three to five percent of people had even started the process. Mm -hmm. And God knows how many had actually gotten through. So if you do the math on that, you're just never going to see the benefit of the law until you take a fundamentally different approach to implementation. And the reason I think they hadn't given thought to implementation is that you need a digital service to do that. Mm -hmm. So we built it. It's very similar to the one I described before that with for food assistance. It's a streamlined, easy form that puts things in plain language. We started helping people um, do this in a in a in a in a much easier way, but then we had the opportunity to work with a district attorney and say, actually, why do people have to fill out a form at all? <laughs> right? Like the way to do this is to go to the state database, take all the records down, run an algorithm on them to determine which ones are expungeable or reclassifiable. Mm-hmm. I'm not a lawyer, so please forgive me if I get some of this stuff wrong. <laughs> it sounds right to me. Wrong. Um, change those that are. There's some number of records that district attorneys are going to want to review because certainly if you have other much more 
critical felony convictions, and we might not want to do it. But the vast majority of this needs to be changed in the database. You can then upload those records back in. And that's now what we're what we're doing with Clear My Record. And it's been a really interesting process because you see people in, in government originally just not having the even the faith that government knows how to do these things technologically. And that's not right. Our government should be competent at technology so that we can govern appropriately yeah. and close the implementation gap. With the government, I wouldn't feel comfortable with having um, a lot of information out there, but some basic information such as my date of birth and my name, and maybe the government should uh, identify me by a number not a social security number, but just a random number and keep the rest of my information in a private quote unquote vault. When it comes to the government, I don't really want them to have any information, but I don't want anyone to have any information. Because once your information's on the web, it's there forever. And I don't want people like stealing my identity or using it against me or, you know, our government becomes more and more fascist. I don't trust it. Uh, I think there is a potential for abuse, but at the same time, allowing the government to have some access to uh, private information facilitates the work of the government. So it has to be balanced out, and I don't know if we've reached the right balance at the moment. You know, this is something we've been talking about a lot in this podcast, you know, whether it's necessary to understand a technology in order to wield it responsibly. Mm-hmm. You know, there are certain things... I probably will never understand Bitcoin completely, but I could still use it. Um, I think about, you know, s- government officials, senators, perhaps, who don't seem to fully understand what's going on in tech. Or, You're being kind, I, I think. know. Well, I'm trying to be <laughs> kind. But, yeah, I it that scares me. But yeah. one doesn't necessarily have to understand how something works in order to understand the implications of a technology. Oh, I agree. I'm not a technologist, and I think it, it's good to know your limits, but mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think... Um, I think that part of what you're talking about is that um, when you insist that everyone has a deep technical knowledge before they can play in the space, you're just alienating everyone. And I see a lot mm-hmm. of people in government essentially feeling afraid of, you know, looking dumb or something. Yeah. And and we really need to create a much more welcoming space when we talk about technology. Nobody wants to be the person that goes down for saying the internet is a series of tubes, for example. <laughs> I don't think that guy cared at the end of the day, though. We all care. But is, I mean, is there an educational component? I mean, when you're bringing in all this fresh blood into yeah. government government organizations and, and, you know, trying to build systems, are you sort of mm-hmm. also educating government employees and workers and elected officials on, on how these things can be implemented in a way that's beneficial to the people they are serving? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the... the but, but, but let me put a little bit of nuance on that in two ways. Um, I mean, I think the first thing we're doing is proving that it can work, right? Just so like one of our pillars is just show what's possible. Some of it is just, yes, if you're not living and breathing the technology world, you might not have a sense of what's easy to do and what's hard with the technology. I mean, realistically, most people today have a cell phone, they mm-hmm. have some interaction with technology, they do get that things are possible that were not possible before. But in government, there's just this like real pervasive sense um, 
that yes, but not in government. Like that may be <laughs> that may be possible outside, but we're not going to be able to do that in here. And and that's not true. There's yeah. there's no reason you can't. And so just showing that, and once you kind of break that open and break open people's um, expectations and, and preconceptions, then you can you can sort of move the conversation to a different place. Um, there is certainly some degree of just um, e- educating. Folks about what technology can do in the service of what they're trying to accomplish, right? But I think the thing that we do most, more than sort of educate, is like unlock people and just tell them they. It's like you know, Dorothy at the end, like you had the power all along. Mm-hmm. Like they had the power, they just need to not be scared about it. Sure, it's about more than coding. It's about an approach, an ethos, a, a way of rolling out products, a way of mm-hmm. thinking about the user. I suppose the citizen, right? yeah, the ultimate user is the citizen. Uh, and um, yeah, and a, and a way of, of understanding where people are coming from and, and actually applying it to a, a tool at hand. Speaking of citizenship, I suppose, I mean, what, what do you, how do you see citizenship evolving in the digital age? I mean, how can we harness technology to make more engaged citizens? Is it about making applications that streamline, you know, processes of government or is it something bigger? Well, I think it starts with making apl- uh, making interfaces to government that, as we say, are simple, beautiful, and easy to use mm-hmm. because it starts to break down that sense of distance between uh, and sort of distrust of the institution. Mm-hmm. So we were just going to do a lot, I think, to win people back to government. And as they say, you know, customer service is the new marketing. Like, <laughs> it's just like we've got to have good interactions yeah. with the general public. Um, I, I would ask people to think about um, our role as citizens in understanding not just the politics, but um, the machinery of government. Mm-hmm. Um uh, my friend Brian Leffler said once, you know, neglecting the machinery of government is a choice. And I think it's easy to to decide who made those choices. Um, I don't think Congress has made great decisions on this. I just don't like they're not incented to deal with the nuts and bolts. Like no one mm-hmm. gets reelected on procurement reform. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, neglecting the machinery of government is a choice that the American people have made, too. And so there's a specific call, I think, to, um, you know, I think citizenship for people with technology and design skills, and by the way, that's anybody because anybody can have technology and design skills, to me means um, having part of their career, maybe not all of it, but but doing a tour of duty in government. Mm-hmm. Um, that's standard for, you know, really, you know, you know, high status careers like lawyers uh, in our city is like part of your career is you go work in government for a while and, and that should become a norm in technology. I like that. I mean, it would certainly demystify a lot of the systems at play, help people understand what's really going on. Oh, it completely changes people's view on things. I mean, you go in like, well, I'm going to do this, that, and the other, and you get in, you're like, oh, this is why it's so hard. Oh, and this is why these laws and rules that seem insane are there in the first place. Mm-hmm. Oh, you get a lot of empathy. I mean, I had never worked in government when I started Code for America. I sent two classes, two and a half classes um, of fellows into City Hall to work before it, I had ever done it myself. And then when I went and worked for a year in government, I was like, oh, this is really hard. <laughs> and all the fellows were like, yeah, we told you that. <laughs> I don't think the government has complete control over technology. Like there's so much happening with technology and so many new inventions and different ways of using technology, and there is no way the government could possibly control what's going on. 
I think the government definitely understands technology. I mean, all the apps and everything with permission, like we're getting tracked at all times with fingerprints, pictures, face recognition. So they definitely understand it. And I think they understand it to a point of like they take advantage of people they don't realize they're using stuff for fun and they're really getting tracked at all times. Yeah, when it comes to government and technology, I'd say there's probably a lot of room for improvement and more understanding on their ends. Um, it seems like our private sector is doing a pretty good job, but the government needs to catch up a little. I'm Claire Evans, and this is You, a podcast about the intersection of technology and identity. On today's episode, we're talking about the government, specifically how we can use technology to better serve we the people. Our guest, Jennifer Palka, runs an organization called Code for America that's partnering with the U.S. government to do just that. When you were working under the Obama administration, you briefly touched a project called Login.gov. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yeah, Login.gov has been in the works for a while, but the wonderful team at 18F, which is part of the federal government, great you know, world-class technologists and designers working in federal government have really taken this thing to a point where it's really usable by everyone. I used it the other day. And it's just a way to really verify your identity with what will eventually be a number of different digital services that you might interact with in the government. So I used it the other day because I was flying back from Bucharest, and I realized that I was flying on a different passport than my global entry had. Mm. So I needed to update my passport number in my global entry. Do you know what global entry is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So it's that thing where you can skip a line. I I'm sort of always feel like a little bit of a jerk, but like I no. kind of like skipping the line. No, I got TSA pre. I mean, it's <laughs> the poor man's global entry. Yeah, it's all good. Uh, so um, you you can go in on on you can go online, and you uh, it's very secure way of. Of verifying who you are, and it uses some uh, um, two-factor authentication that I'm I'm used to in my digital life. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, there's there's a number of different ways to do it. They can text you a number. You can use one of the um, authenticator apps, uh, and it's just a service that works the way you think it should work. It works really, really well, and it's a it is literally a service that they are providing to other services. So. Mm-hmm. Um, other federal agencies with other um, needs to interact with Americans and, and others probably as well, but the end user um, can also use it. So they don't have to build their own way of figuring out that you are who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very, it's much, much safer, I think, than a lot of the ways that that the different um, federal, state and local agencies have built in the past to sort of say, yeah, we think this is you. Do you, th- I mean, do you see that as something that's going to become more prevalent in terms of how we do citizenship? I mean, is there going to be sort of a digital citizenship centralized kind of footprint that we all have in the future? Well, the thing about login.gov is it really isn't centralized. That's Mm -hmm. the thing. And I don't, I mean, to be honest, Americans do not trust the government to centralize our information about us. Uh, Is that technically possible? Absolutely. Is that politically feasible? Not in the next decade. Mm -hmm. Um, So we have to figure out ways to get the convenience that we want out of an identity, you know, a digital identity without the fear of of putting things, you know, of of the government having this sort of dossier on you that that people just feel deeply, deeply uncomfortable with. But the government already has. I mean, my assumption is that the government already has a lot of that information, right? I'm a taxpayer. I'm, I travel. I've got a passport, all that stuff. I mean, that information is all 
in some repository somewhere. Maybe it's more paper than digital, but it doesn't seem like a huge difference to me, really. I think engaged citizen is a citizen who is involved in the community, who is aware of his or her rights, and um, who has a very open outlook towards others, towards accepting technology in this case, or even towards new things in life. So, yeah. I think that it means speaking up and giving your opinion on things that you want changed, uh, and also listening to the voice of others, um, and kind of hearing them out and working as a community to manipulate change that uh, will benefit others and everyone. An engaged citizen would be a person who uh, engages with all people across all spectrums of life, all economic spectrums, political spectrums, any spectrum. This is maybe a silly question, but is there an analogy to be made between users and citizens? I mean, should our elected mm-hmm. officials think of us as users of government? Is that beneficial? Yes, um, but not exclusively. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a bunch of big, important differences. Government services have to work for everybody. You don't get to choose your market. Yeah, That doesn't mean there aren't specific communities that use services more. So, like, understanding who uses food stamps um, without the preconceptions that come with that, like really actually doing the research. Who, who, are the, who are these people? What do they need? What are the barriers that they face? Not who do I think uses food stamps, for instance, and mm-hmm. let me bring a bunch of you know, potentially um, damaging um, biases into that. There's a lot of people in our culture still, in our society, who like just don't do digital. We still have to serve them. Yeah. The other difference is like we don't when you're when you are acting as a consumer, you are going to give money probably or time or something mm-hmm. and get back a thing. And that's not fundamentally the equation. When you're acting as a citizen, you should be coming to that saying, no, I'm I'm participating in the thing, the 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 one big institution that's supposed to serve all of us and is supposed to be um fueled by all of us mm-hmm. and it should you should come to it with less of a sense of transaction in my in my view yeah well we pay, i mean i pay taxes right yeah. like i expect to get something back for mm-hmm. for that sacrifice um i don't necessarily mm-hmm. want to think of myself as a user either but i think there is there is something transactional about government there can be yeah there certainly can be i think um that is going to be true of a lot of different services and i think the idea of having smooth easy transactions is not something we should throw away. Like, that's an important concept. Mm -hmm. There's a guy named Donald Kettle who wrote about this idea of vending machine government. You put your money in, you get your thing back. Like, I'm putting in this money, and I'm paying my taxes. I want my garbage picked up, and I Mm -hmm. want my kids to be able to go to school, right, Mm -hmm. or whatever your set of things is. Um, And in contrast to that, a bunch of thinkers, including a guy who happens to be my husband named Tim O'Reilly, talked about the idea of government as a platform, then it's like, it's not just like I can only buy that thing that's in the vending machine. And if I don't like it, I shake the vending machine in sort of a traditional protest model. Mm-hmm. But think about government as a platform to, for people to build on. Uh, and in, you know, current technology 
platform parlance that you know you you can op- you can think about things like opening up an API to a service so that many other people can create value by creating other front ends to it rather than just saying this is it this is healthcare.gov or this is it this is the way food stamps will be administered mm-hmm. um, that's one example of government as a platform but the reason to think about it that way is not just because it gets out of a, a transactional mindset but because it means that it can scale it can actually grow to meet the size of the need in a community mm-hmm. if people can say I'm going to build my own solution based on um, this fundamental infrastructure that government has provided. I mean, truthfully, that is government. I mean, government creates these things like roads, and then we drive on them and create value by driving on them. Mm -hmm. We're just talking about extending that, thinking more in that model, and then updating it for a digital world where a lot of these things have to happen digitally. How has your outlook on the relationship between tech and government changed since you started Code for America? Wow. Well, it's a pretty different world. I mean, I started yeah. it in 2011. And in 2011, um, it was very much, oh, tech will save government. And I will admit to a bit of naive- naivete in that approach very quickly had that worked out of me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think while the press was happy to write about us as like these techies going in and fixing everything and they, you know, the people in government will learn from the techies, I think the techies learned as much or more from the people in government. Um, but that was the zeitgeist back mm-hmm. in back in, in, in when we first got started. And the mood around tech was that, you know, Facebook was going to save us. Um, mm-hmm. Technology is making life so much better for everyone and connecting the world. And the downsides of it had not yet, were not at the topic of conversation. Mm-hmm. Um in those intervening years, not only have we learned a lot about technology, we've also learned a lot about our government and its resilience, or, you know, hopefully its resilience. <laughs> but we also have had a lot of people from technology go into government that I don't think would have otherwise, both through Code for America and through United States Digital Service, 18F, these places in federal government, it never used to have the kinds of technologists that we have encouraged. And I think those people would all say that um, it's a actually a delight to be able to practice mm-hmm. their skills in the service of the public. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's a sense almost to me that while we thought tech would save government, in fact, government and the principles and values of government may have a role in saving the technology community. Oh, that's a beautiful way of putting it. It strikes me that government politics, perhaps more, is becoming a larger and larger part of the American identity. Is that something that you're perceiving from your position in the trenches? I surround myself with a community of people who are identifying with government, I think, in a way that's in sharp contrast with the national dialogue, at least to the degree that the national dialogue is increasingly polarized over politics. Mm -hmm. I have a community of people who fundamentally believe in government working, and that isn't an idea that is particularly Democratic or Republican. And I think both they would say that I and they would say that sort of both sides um, haven't done what they've needed to do to make government work. And I have a friend actually who, who says we need to start the get shit done party. (laughs) (laughs) 
You got you've got one voter right there. <laughs> but you know, if you look at government, the actual problems that are keeping people from these things, it's really easy. You know, if, you, if you're on the inside, it's really easy to say yes. I there are differences. I don't want to dismiss them. There mm-hmm. certainly are, but there's so much more common ground then there are differences if you are just talking about the business of government, not politics, Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. government. So I would like to see more of that identity attached to government and government functions and less to politics. This is you, and this is me, Claire Evans. Thanks so much to our guests, Jennifer Palka and Anna Piparol, for joining us. We'll be back next week to talk about virtual reality, augmented reality, and how these digital worlds interact and overlap with our physical selves. Don't forget to subscribe, share, and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. Until next time.